0: Check out heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. Hey, it's Rhett. You may not know this, but I'm a big fan of the movie. This is Spinal Tap, the mockumentary film that chronicles an over-the-hill rock band on a tour from hell. Sounds familiar? I mean, everything that can go wrong does in Spinal Tap, and the disasters that happen are so familiar to most working musicians that honestly, I don't know whether to laugh or cry when I watch it. It's hilariously sad or sadly hilarious. I'm not sure which. Anyway, there's a great new podcast that I want to share with you guys today Too Much Effing Perspective that uses this movie as an inspiration to draw out the very best of the worst from its guests, their own spinal tap moment stories. The guests are great too, like Joey Santiago from the Pixies. The guys from Old Crow Medicine Show, Drive-By Truckers, even comedians and actors like David Cross and Julie Bowen from Modern Family. And guess who was recently on the show? Me. And I had a blast. I got to talk about the time I was recording with Waylon Jennings, and he was saying a word in my song, Wrong. And I had to, like, go and correct him. I've been dining out on that story for years, but I really dig into it on this podcast That was a rough one. Uh, Or the time I accidentally insulted Dave Foley, a member of one of my favorite comedy groups, Kids in the Hall, the world's nicest guy, Dave Foley. Or about the time a record label flew us all the way out to L.A. to supposedly court us, but it was quickly obvious they didn't even like our music. You know, stuff that wasn't too funny when it happened, but is kind of hysterical looking back. So sit back and give too much effing perspective a listen. I think you'll really dig it. You can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts. Let me just go big picture for a second. Spinal Tap, as a cultural reference within my band, and probably, I think, within most bands, especially of the old 97s vintage, it's not just one of the references, it is the reference, to the point where I think it was like 96, we had to make a band rule barring Spinal Tap references, because Every moment of every day was a Spinal Tap reference. It's more surprising when it isn't a Spinal Tap moment.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Cleveland! Turn your speakers up to 11 because it's time for Too Much Effing Perspective the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most final tap moments when nothing goes right and everything gets kind of weird. I'm your host, Alan Keller, a comedy writer in L.A. and lead singer of the least heralded Chicago band, The Falling Willendas.
3: And I'm your co-host, Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead and lead singer of the least heralded Milwaukee band, The Vainglorious.
2: Our guest today is Rhett Miller from the old 97.
3: We're going to talk to Rhett about the time Kobe Bryant said cool after he sang the national anthem at a Lakers game. We're also going to talk about the time Kobe didn't say cool, when Rhett sang the anthem Stone, and how awkward it was being at a recording studio when Kanye West was in the vocal booth taking a quote-unquote nap with a lady.
2: That was their words, not ours. (laughs) So without further ado... Let's go to the T-M-E-P show. It really puts perspective on things it doesn't it? Not too it? much. There's
4: oh, too yeah. much think,
2: perspective now. Alex, I'm a sensitive guy. Mm-hmm. Not in the sense of, like, you could tell me your problems over a beer and I'd give a crap. <laughs> I'm sensitive in that I feel easily slighted. Like, if I send a text and I see it was read but then there's no immediate response, I feel hurt. Oh. Or if my oldest daughter doesn't have my music on any of her playlists, I feel mm-hmm. hurt. Or if I'm recording an album with my band, The Falling Melendes, and Shirley Manson is recording at the same time in the <laughs> studio next to ours with her band, Garbage, and we've had plenty of pleasant chit-chats <laughs> over the course of a month. And then I ask her if she wants to hear the song we just mixed, and she says, "No, I'm writing a letter... I'm sorry. I feel hurt. Did that really happen? It really happened. And I've, you know, we had Matt Walker on who's played with them and I always bring it up. And this thing with Shirley happened like nearly 30 years ago, but it still bugs me. And the fact that I just don't let it go is something I'm not particularly proud of, but that's just who I am. And it can be counterproductive.
3: Sadly, I'm similar. I still think back sometimes on something someone did or said a decade ago. And my inner
2: voice will say, what a knucklehead. A decade ago. That's like yesterday to my grudge factory. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, okay. I'll give you an example. Like one of the biggest supporters of the Falling Willendas used to be ex-Rolling Stone magazine editor Park Pewterball. Park loved my music, wrote fantastic reviews about me and my band, and hipped other critics to us. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. But then in 2000, I released a solo album called Wuthering Depths, which I think is the best thing I ever did. Unfortunately, hardly anyone else heard it because I put it out myself and I wasn't playing live anymore. But I got it to some critics and the few reviews I did receive were really, really positive. In fact, I even got a feature review in Stereo Review Magazine. Wow, nice. Yeah, and it was really cool because that's a national magazine and to review an album that really wasn't available was great. Anyway, every year, the Village Voice used to conduct a music poll where critics would submit their top 10 albums of the year, like the ultimate best of. Mm -hmm. And you could look up each critic's ballot online. And Wuthering Depths, which really, I could say, had 20 copies sold, got several votes. But one person who didn't put it in their top 10 was Park. Oh, wow. But, you know, it didn't mean he didn't love it. Didn't mean it wasn't 11th but it hurt my feelings. so
3: (laughs) Of course it did.
2: (laughs) So I called him up, and I gave him a little shit about it, trying to act like I was kidding about being annoyed. Yeah, great idea. But I guess I'm not that great of an actor because our relationship was strained from then on.
3: I suppose with the benefit of hindsight,
2: you got to ask yourself, what's to be gained by going down that path, right? Chalk it up to my insecurity with never achieving the recognition for my music that I hoped I'd get and... Frankly, I think I deserved. So it made me feel a little less awful about myself when our guest today, <laughs> Rhett Miller, laughed about occasionally feeling the same way. And if
3: someone who's far, far, far
2: more successful and
3: even more charming than you feels that way, well, all right,
2: you know, I'm starting to feel bad again. Oh,
3: I'm just kidding, Alan.
2: My feelings are hurt. <laughs>
3: You know that I'm a fan of your stuff, right? I
2: know. In fact,
3: the reason that I agreed to do this podcast with you is because I felt
2: like maybe, finally, finally your time has come. That's the nicest thing maybe anyone's ever said to me. Thank you, Alex. I appreciate that. But
3: if your time has come, I want my payoff for (laughs) all those unrewarded decades of love and support. (laughs) Listeners, if you want to make Alan feel better about himself, and frankly, me too, And you haven't heard other episodes of Too Much Effing Perspective. Well, we'd ask you to check out some of our great conversations with guests like Joey Santiago from the Pixies, Carrie Brownstein and Corin Tucker of Slater-Kinney, Old Crow Medicine Show, Drive-By Truckers. Not
2: to mention artist Shepard Fairey, actress Julie Bowen from Modern Family, and comedian David Cross. There's a ton of them. But now let's get to our chat with
3: Rhett. But first, a short break.
2: And now a musician who performed a We Are the World parody with Elvis Costello, Nora Jones, Mary J. Blige, and Sheryl Crow on NBC's hit comedy, 30 Rock, Old 97's Rhett Miller. Welcome,
3: Rhett. We're delighted that you're here with us on Too Much Effing Perspective. Let's start with this. Is it true That you've played, so? what was the number you said, Alan? Was it like 2,000 shows, 4,000 shows?
2: Rhett said he's played like 150 shows a year.
1: So 30 years at 150 gigs, because there were definitely years where we were at like 250, but then there were probably lean years. So a conservative estimate would be 150 gigs a year for 30 years. So 4,500 gigs, probably closer to 5,000 gigs as the old 97s. And then I do a lot of solo gigs.
3: Yeah. So I'm going to just ask you the impossible question. Is there a single Spinal Tap moment gig that stands out in your mind?
1: There was a, a television appearance that we did recently. Like it, you would think that the most Spinal Tap moments would have happened in our wilder, younger years. <laughs> right. But there was one. It was a Conan O'Brien appearance that we did for Graveyard Whistling. It's a song called Good With God. And Caitlin Rose flew in from Nashville to sing the Brandy Carlisle part. I was staying at my friend Tom's house, our old and r guy from Electra, and the band was all staying at that hotel on uh, Ventura Boulevard that everybody stays at. Sportsman's Lodge. Sportsman's Lodge. All right. And so the band was staying there, and 8 a.m. I get a phone call. God, not even 8 a.m. Like 6.30 a.m. I get a phone call from uh, our guitar player, Ken, and I guess during the night, our drummer, Philip went out to the van to catch a little pre-bedtime buzz, and... Um, like, I guess it's still in our minds being these Texan kids from the 90s that, like, we will go to jail. And he's just, like, smoking a weed out in the van when you could just <laughs> fucking go to the police station and do it. <laughs> and so he gets out of the <sighs> van. God, I don't know if this is public consumption. Whatever. It's fine. His kids are in college now. And um, he goes out to the van and he blacks out like a low blood sugar thing. Oh no! And, yeah, he falls forward and he hits his face on an embankment and passes out. Bleeding in the parking lot for like half an hour. Gets up covered in blood. Goes into the sportsman's lodge lobby where the front desk attendant is like, "You are going to the hospital, sir." Oh no! So they call our tour manager and our guitar player, and they all go down to the emergency room. Our drummer is in ICU. It's bad. He cracked his skull. He's fine now, so we can all laugh about it. But at the time, it was wait. Really am I horrifying. sorry? I'm sorry. Is skull like skull fracture. Literally. Yeah. Are you, are yeah. What you're saying wow. Oh, yeah. Boy. Okay. But so that morning, I called Mark Stepro, This friend of mine is a great drummer in L.A. Stepro's like, I'm on my way to the studios right now. We all play together for the first time at 10 a.m. during soundcheck. At noon, the director came by and listened to us play it. And Mark killed it. And Caitlin Rose sounded great. The band was all freaked out because we are worried about Philip. But we make it through the director run through. And then as we finish, the guitar player, Ken, goes, I need to have a band meeting right now in the green room. Murray, the bass player, and me and Ken go into the green room, close the door, and he locks it, which is very weird. And then he turns around and he goes, guys, I'm freaking out. I'm tripping balls. I accidentally ate. He goes, I was really tired, and I was packing up Philip's stuff to get out of the hotel room, and he had these espresso beans. And I was like, well, I'm hungry. They're chocolate. They're espresso. They'll wake me up. It'll be great. He's like, I ate three or four of them. And Ken, our guitar player, is not a big stoner. And he's like... I don't know if I can do this, guys. I am starting to see colors and hear shapes. And we still had like three hours before the taping. So I sent him to our friend's house and I said, You're going to take a nap, then you're going to take a shower, and you're going to come back here with a full reset and you're going to do great. Everything's going to be fine. So Ken went back. He took a nap, took a shower, came back right before we went on. He walked in, just eyes like saucers. We did the song for the taping. It was great. And you can see it now, although I think the Conan people have taken down all the old archives. But you could see it on the tape. When Conan walks over, like he always does, he walks straight to the guitar player, always, because he's a guitar player. And he walks straight to Ken with his arm outstretched to say, "'Great job! I love your guitar!' and ken turns away from conan right as he gets to <laughs> ken and he sticks his arms up in the air like rocky at the end of the movie and he's like yes because he didn't screw it up he made it through the whole song even though he was still tripping balls but um yeah and we're old i mean this is a man who at that point was in his 50s so yeah it's a little That's sad.
3: embarrassing it's a <laughs> thank you for talking that story <laughs> that is one of the best
2: Rhett Miller, come on down. What's your favorite scene in the movie? This is Spinal Tap. So I married a woman from Cleveland named Erica,
1: who's so great and funny and nice, but also has really strong opinions <laughs> and has opinions about like what the band should do and how the band should dress. And she... <laughs> She's constantly coming in before like TV appearances or big shows and giving input about outfits. Maybe, maybe she's telling Murray to clip his nose hairs. There's just sometimes a line might get crossed. Right. And so, um, did she ever give you astrological sweatshirts to wear? <laughs> that's my point. They started calling her Janine in the band. <laughs> And so um, I had to explain to her that that's not a negative thing. That's just a reference. (laughs) But but so um, my favorite scene in Spinal Tap is in the lobby of the hotel, and they run into the much more successful band that's playing the Enormo Dome.
3: Duke fame.
1: Duke fame. And they got to go sit over here and wait for the limousine. It's just there's something about being in a band that is built on envy and that feeling of competition. And sometimes it's really healthy and loving, and sometimes it's just poisonous. And so when you can uh, turn that into comedy like they do in that scene, then I think that's sweet and good. But God, I've felt that way so many times. Like, why do these no talent assholes get to go play the Enormo Dome.
3: (laughs) You've had the opportunity to work with a number of your heroes, right? You've collaborated with Waylon Jennings, Roseanne Cash, Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick made a cameo in one of your videos. Uh, You've worked with Peter Buck. Have you had anything that you would kind of characterize as a Spinal Tap moment working with any of those folks? Man,
1: uh, let me just... Go big picture for a second. Spinal Tap as a cultural reference within my band and probably, I think, within most bands, especially of the old 97s vintage, it's not just one of the references. It is the reference to the point where I think it was like 96. We had to make a band rule barring Spinal Tap references because every moment of every day was a Spinal Tap reference.
3: I am so glad you shared the story. About the old 97s having a oratorium on Spinal Tap references. When I was tour managing Radiohead and they first came to the U.S., they had just flown in. We were on the bus driving to our first show up in Boston. I called the band and crew in for a a meeting in the front lounge. I said, look, I don't have a lot of rules, but I do have one. Do not quote Spinal Tap. We don't want our tour to turn into it. And they're all like, yeah, 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 yeah. That sounds like a good policy.
1: It's more surprising when it isn't a spinal tap moment. Like, for instance, when Waylon Jennings winds up being like this really sweet, down to earth dad who's super generous and wants to tell stories. He told the story of uh, putting Buddy Holly on an airplane the airplane on Buddy Holly's final trip, and they had flipped a coin to see who would get to ride on the airplane versus the bus, and Buddy Holly won, quote-unquote, and got to ride mm. on the airplane, and Waylon, as a joke, the last thing he ever said to him was I hope you all damn old plane crashes.
3: Oh my goodness. Yeah.
1: I know he told that story a million times, because I'd, I'd heard it, you know, in a, in a bunch of places, but when he told us that story during the lunch break, he still got tears in his eyes, and it was still this just incredibly human moment you know it's your heroes are still people and that's for better or worse obviously
2: can i give you our expansive view on what a spinal tap moment is yeah because that's a great story but basically it's things that weren't funny when they happened but are funny in retrospect
1: well with the waylon jennings thing there was a really tense moment in the recording studio with waylon where he kept mispronouncing a word and he was doing one of a a song that I had written and I was 25 and, um, and he kept mispronouncing the word elixir. And finally, like after however many takes, they're like, he's not going to get this, is he? And they all look at me. I'm the youngest person there. And I'm like, fuck, I got to go in and sit down with Wayland Jennings. <laughs> and so I, I went in and I sat down cross-legged on the floor. He was sitting in a folding chair and I looked up at him. I said, Mr. Jennings, this is incredible. You sound so great, but you keep mispronouncing this word elixir. And he said, well, what the hell's an elixir? And I said, it's like an old-timey drug. And he's like, oh, you think I'd know that? I'm like, I know, exactly. He's like, what am I saying? I'm like, you keep saying Excelsior, which is a whole other thing. And he goes, all right, all right, I'll get it. So he did it again and said Excelsior. And I, like, yeah. I had to go back in and sit on the floor. And he goes, I did it again, didn't I? And um, I said, Yeah. I said, you know what? What if we just forget about the word elixir? What if you just imagine that there's two women who love each other very much, and one of them is named Annie, and you just say, Annie licks her. He looked at me weird, and I thought for a second, like, oh, no, he's going to like get upset. And he goes, you're sick. I like it. And he fucking nailed it on the next take, and it was perfect. But
2: So I have a similar story. I am friends with Peter Buffett, who's Warren Buffett's son. Damn. And like, his ex-wife was the manager of my band, Women's Liberace, and I was living with Peter in Milwaukee, and this was the night before the 92 election, Bill Clinton was making a whistle stop through Wisconsin, and he comes to the mansion to film his last commercial, and at that time, he's like, talking like this, he can't even talk, Then he goes on camera to film the commercial, and he's perfect, you know, he's crystal clear, but right afterwards, he's back to this. So he goes up to everybody at the end of the night to shake their hand, and all the press is there, and he comes up to me, and I said, that was a Brian Piccolo performance, sir. And so if you don't know, Brian Piccolo was a Chicago Bear football player. He died of cancer. There's a movie made about his life called Brian's Song, which is about how brave this guy was. So I'm basically saying to Clinton, man, that was really courageous, right? Right. But he's looking at me like he doesn't know what I said or what I meant. And I'm just stuck there with him shaking my hand for what feels like an hour, two hours, (laughs) three hours. And just as I'd given up hope that this was going to turn into a cool moment, he says, well, I hope it turns out better than that. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he bailed me out. Just like Waylon bailed you out.
1: That's the thing. I mean, that's what you want from your heroes, right? You want them to be generous people that get it. Yeah.
2: Red, I know Dave Foley from Kids in the Hall, and his wife Chrissy Guerrero. She sang on one of your albums, and I told her I was talking to you today, and she said to say hi. Yeah,
1: she's great. It's funny, when you asked me about a Spinal Tap moment, I've gotten to know Dave over the years some, but the first time I met him, I did such a stupid thing where I've never forgotten it. I don't know if you guys are like this, but for my whole life, there's like a handful of things that I've said where I like wake up in the middle of the night and go, I can't believe I said that to Dave Foley. (laughs) It was the late 90s. We're both on Letterman. It was during a summer break from news radio, and I'm a huge Kids in the Hall fan. Like We referenced Kids in the Hall in the opening line of the single off the most recent old 97s album. And so I asked if I could meet him. We were on the stairwell, I remember, in the Ed Sullivan Theater. And I was nervous. And his hair was dyed blonde. And I said... Uh, how come you dyed your hair blonde? He goes, Well, I dyed it blonde for a part. And at the time, Dave had always been, you know, young and trim, and he had put on a few pounds. God knows I know the feeling, right? Now, <laughs> so thinking that I'm so funny, I said, Oh, did you gain that weight for the part two? And oh. I'm like, what? what am I thinking? <laughs> but like Bill Clinton, he smiled a, like a wry smile and he goes, No. That's from having a hit television show. And I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, he just boy. spiked nice. on me. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. He could have just stormed off. But we've met since then. I shared that memory with him and apologized again. He's like, you probably shouldn't have brought it up again.
2: <laughs> he did.
3: <laughs> it feels like Rolling Stone has kind of a love affair with you. I was pleasantly surprised with just how many headlines feature you in the old 97s over a number of years. Up to the present, really. It's like, see Rhett Miller spar with God in raucous Jesus loves you performance. Oh. Uh, another one, year in review. So, how was your 2020, Rhett Miller? <laughs> another one is old 97 singer Rhett Miller damages voice, resorts to Twitter. Oh no. <laughs> Rhett Miller interprets David Bowie's Queen Bitch. <laughs> so, is that in fact the case? Is there a special relationship there? Man.
1: I'm friends with some of the folks at Rolling Stone over the years, but they're not even the folks that make the decisions to throw my name into those headlines. And God knows I'm grateful for any stuff like that that I get. But, you know, it's that kind of thing. Like, I remember the first old 97's Electra record, our first review in Rolling Stone and that is such a watermark moment for a band when you finally can open. Because back then, of course, it was very physical copy oriented. You open up Rolling Stone and there it is on page like 72. It's a, your tiny <laughs> little album cover square and then the number of stars. And I think we got three, three and a half stars because it's always three and a half stars. They could say it's the greatest album of all time and it's three and a half stars. Like, well, then what's five? <laughs> but um, the review itself was so tepid. This is me never giving up a grudge. This is like 25 years later. I totally understand. I totally understand. (laughs) Grant was one of the early editors of No Depression. And he basically said, it's too loud to be country and it's too country to be punk. And what are we supposed to make of this? You know, basically saying, I wish they had done it differently. And I'm like, I don't know, man. Why don't you go make a freaking record then, Grant? It was so disappointing. So.
3: <laughs> right. It is one of those, like, what, what have you ever done? All, all the love they've given me. And
1: all I can think about is 25-year-old album review. It was lukewarm. Yeah.
3: <laughs> My first music business gig out of college was working for Cheap Tricks Manager. Nice. In Madison, Wisconsin. And he was a old-school, 70s manager, right? He drove a Ferrari. The office had gold records on all the walls. But I remember I was in the office the day that the Rolling Stone review for their album Busted came out. You know, and that was the first record after they'd had the big hit with The Flame and all that stuff. And he might have even sent me out to the the university bookstore to buy it and bring it in and page through it, open it up, one and a half stars. Mm. And I just remember kind of the air going out of the room and he kind of looks at it and shrugs. It's like, well... What are you going to do? And then he walked in the office, closed the door. And about a half hour later, I heard him yelling at the publicist from the record company. How
1: can this happen? Ah!" That's a killer. I did a podcast recently called Cheap Tracks, where you talk about a cheap trick song for an hour and a half. And they brought up that because, of course, that's kind of a low moment in one of the greatest all-time rock and roll bands. But yeah, he was talking about Rick Nielsen. It might have been the guy that wrote that review for Rolling Stone, somebody that had poorly reviewed that album in a major publication. And Rick, you know, called him up and said, you're taking food out of my kid's mouth, you son of a bitch.
2: (laughs) Cheap Trick is such a cautionary tale, though, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, in the 80s, Epic forced them to use outside songwriters. I mean, can you imagine Rick Nielsen is one of the greatest of all time and he and the band have to record The Flame, which becomes a huge hit, but it sucks. And it's so uncheap trick. And I know that in the 90s, he was working with our old engineer, Doug McBride at Gravity Studios on putting out Live at Budokan 2. Which is great. Yeah, it's great. But he was telling us that Rick seemed to have lost a lot of his confidence. I mean, he was asking Doug, why aren't we bigger than we are? And I don't think he probably feels that way anymore because I think in the interim three decades so many bands have come out to name them as one of their influences and one of their favorites, you know, big bands do. Um, But, you know, it really goes to show you, if Rick Nielsen can lose confidence, what does that mean for the rest of us, right? I know, I know, and he's so good. He's so good.
1: They never got to get rich, right? Like, they were coming up with Kiss and playing shows with Kiss. Everybody that was obsessed with them went and started a band, but it was one of those things where, you know, um, Rick's son, Miles, I don't think this is anything he hasn't said publicly. He grew up and they had old cars. They didn't live in a mansion like it was people thought because his dad was Rick Nielsen that they were huge billionaire rock stars, but it was it's probably like it is with my kids. You know, we just live in a house and make car payments and hope to keep being able to pay the mortgage and the kids go to public school and I don't know, it's middle-class rock and
2: roll. It doesn't happen as
1: much, but um I feel pretty grateful.
2: People think fame and fortune. No, it's fame and maybe fortune, right? <laughs> yeah.
3: Hey, listeners, you get to decide for yourselves if there's a reason Alan and I are unheralded musicians. At the end of every episode, we play a song from his band or my band. So stick around.
2: We're from Milwaukee. I actually lived in Chicago for like a decade. And the alt country scene has always fascinated me because it's a Chicago phenomenon. It's not a Southern phenomenon. You know, we had Uncle Tupelo, and then it becomes Wilco, and Sunvolt, and then you had Robbie Falks, and John Langford, and you had the Mekons, and then the Mekons did the Waco Brothers, right? And so it all kind of comes from there. How do you think you guys fit into that whole scene? We
1: owe our career to Chicago as
2: well. I was on tour with a band called Kill Billy that
1: was like a bluegrass punk band. That band was friends with the folks that would go on to start Bloodshot. I went through just playing rhythm guitar. I never appeared on an album, but I was a touring rhythm guitarist for that band. I think they wanted somebody young. It was so fun, and it was a total learning experience. And I met a bunch of really nice folks in Chicago and brought in the old 97's first recordings. I remember driving all night long to go open for Robbie Folks. I think it was a bill with Robbie and the and then the Blasters and we played first and it was Double Door and it was one of those nights where for whatever reason the room was jammed and we killed it. And that was it in Chicago Decided that they loved us and then we went home to Dallas and we were like why do you motherfuckers not show up at our gigs because (laughs) Chicago loves us and Chicago's way (laughs) cooler than Dallas and they're like oh we actually love you now too and so we started doing well at home because we had done well in Chicago so yeah even though we're not from Chicago I definitely feel like we owe a giant debt of gratitude to Chicago
2: was that before or after your big South by Southwest show in 95 when you guys Obviously, were loved and it sparked a bidding war. That Chicago thing was
1: ninety four, and then that whole year ninety four into ninety five, we would blast out in our old, you know, Dodge van and just tour as much as we could. A lot of it was St. Louis, Chicago, home. But then we did West Coast, we did um, the Northeast a little bit, and then it wound up culminating in that South by, and then the the god the six months after that South by Southwest where we had like 15 major labels spending tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars to try and get us an alt country band to sign to them and, It was great. I mean, it was heady stuff, for sure. And we wound up at a label, which really wound up being good for us, because without us kowtowing to radio or changing our name, which they wanted, I mean, at the beginning, they are like, what about the new 97s?
2: (laughs) (laughs) The originals. Uh, No, the the new new original 97s.
1: (laughs) But they kept us on for three records and then a solo record for me and... Say what you will about the major label system, we did milk it for a long time. We got pretty lucky, and I think we made some good choices about who we worked with, and we chose our fights. And a lot of times we would just go with the flow. They promised three videos an album. We didn't get any videos, but we didn't make too big of a stink about it. We got to keep making albums, that kind of
2: stuff. Yeah. Okay, now let's, uh, let's talk about the bizarro world example of that. My band, The Falling Willendas, were signed to a three-record deal with an indie. And in the middle of recording our second record at Smart Studios, you know, Butch Vig's place, our label was having financial problems. And when we finished the record, they ended up only pressing 1,000 copies. So I just said, you know, you guys can't afford to put out a third album, so let's just part ways. So we verbally agreed to that, and I proceeded to put money into producing our third record, which was called Patty Cake, and we immediately got major label interest, which was going to culminate in a showcase show at South by Southwest. So we're really excited. Yeah. We're driving down to Austin, but on the way, we find out that our label got wind of it and that we might get signed, and they decided to say, hey, that third record is part of our deal, Uh. even though they agreed to let us go. So we got lawyers involved, and it turned into a shit show, and the majors found out about this before we played, and nobody showed up to see us. Got back in our cars, drove back to Illinois, depressed, and we broke up within months. (sighs)
3: Sorry about that. Thank Uh you. (laughs) We've heard some funny stories about the bidding war situation, and Nicole Atkins, who you also know. She was telling us that she was actually getting the first good meals she'd had in a long time because of the record company taking her out to dinner and stuff like that. Was there one crazy experience that sticks out in your mind? God, there was this one
1: trip where Capitol Records had flown us out. And the first guy we met with was the head of radio at the time. It was a really famous radio guy. And um, they had paid a lot of money to have us there and put us up in the Roosevelt, which was the Rock and Roll Hotel. Sure. And we went in for the meeting and the guy, he wouldn't look at us. He kept looking over our shoulder at the sports center on the TV and he goes, listen, I could sit here and blow you and tell you that I like your music, but you know, they wanted me to take this meeting and whatever. I think it's fine. If anything, you guys are probably going to be like a triple A kind of band if, if anything, but I don't really see there being a lot of legs in this, you know? So whatever. And I was like, whoa, you guys brought it. This is a dog and pony show where you're trying to like woo us. And he's like, yeah, that's just not really who I am. And I said, well, what about college radio as an avenue to break our band? Because at the time, that was very much a thing. I said, what about like the REM model? And he goes, you think you know, REM? I worked REM. You don't know anything about REM. You are not REM. And I was like, well, I agree with you on that. But still, come on. Can't you at least kiss our ass a little bit? And then they took us up to the top floor to Gary Gersh's office and um, I don't think I'm burning any bridges here because I don't think Gersh is like banging down my door (laughs) and his assistant brought us in to his office and there was a little circle of chairs but Gary was at his desk with his back to us on the phone and he didn't turn around to wave or like give me one minute none of that I uh, just kept his back to us, and the assistant gestures at the chairs, and Mur- Murray goes to sit down at one of the chairs, and the assistant goes, that's Mr. Gersh's chair. And I'm like, oh, God, okay. The whole meeting was like, he never wants, oh, whatever, this is just also nitpicky. He just kept showing us music videos, like, you see that? This is the new Manzi Star video. I told him that's the single. That's going to be a hit. To his credit. It was a hit. See, that's the new Radiohead single. You know what? I told them that's going to be a hit. <laughs> it was so weird because it was almost as if he was trying to convince us not to sign <laughs> to his record label. Whereas in the meantime, Electra Records, who we wound up signing with snuck in and hired a bunch of limousines to come to the hotel that Capitol had put us up at. And then they were like, hey, guys, come down to the front. And they drove us to Dodger Stadium. And they took us down onto the field for batting practice. And then the head of West Coast Electra looked at me and he goes, you're off book on the National Anthem, right? and i'm like whoa <laughs> that's a hard song that's a hard, hard song he's like i know he's like just kidding just kidding and then they, they did the crazy like level of opulence of the night they showed us in secret while we were there on capital's dime yeah we went with electra
2: So did you end up singing the Star Spangled Banner? Because that's like the patriotic dream on. It's so hard to sing, right? It's like oh, only a few people so can sing that. Yeah, yeah, it. Is. Yeah,
1: I used to sing it for the Lakers all the time until there was one time.
3: Like I'd done it for. Wait, like are you are you serious? Years, you dude. actually at the Staples Center? You sang it for the Lakers game? I sang it at the Forum and oh at the my St- Oh my god, the wow. Forum.
1: Yeah, both of them. The Forum was better because before the anthem, you would go back into the freaking band locker room and smoke weed because of course you know and they're like that's the room for sean penn and jack nicholson that's where they go do whatever they do in between (laughs) quarters uh but yeah i used to sing it for them a lot and every time i would finish because you're right next to the team kobe would look over me go cool I'm like, oh, Kobe just
2: called oh, me cool. that's really neat.
1: But there was one time in like oh five. this is back, I used to smoke a lot of weed, and I had a two-hour rule. Like, I'm not going to smoke weed two hours before a gig, which is fine for a gig. But for the anthem, I cut it a little close on the two-hour rule, went to the thing, and... I'm standing in front of 17,000 people at the Staples Center. It was a Thursday night game, I think. And it was just like one of those intense moments. And I look over and Adam Levine is like right there giving me the, who are you, bro? (laughs) And so I hit that moment that always screws people up. It's the end of one verse section. It's the same as the end as the second. And if you say the words for the second, you are completely gone. And I started to say the wrong lyrics, caught myself but not without like a big hiccup of, "Uh, uh," and then I punk rocked the finale and I didn't (laughs) completely melt down. Like I didn't make sports center for instance, but (laughs) it was to the point where as I was leaving the court, first of all, Kobe did not say cool. And then as I was leaving the court, people were like, good save, bro. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> they noticed. After,
1: yeah, after that, I was like, you know what? Courtside seats are not worth the pressure of that.
2: Oh, oh, oh but that, you got courtside seats.
1: Every time you sing the anthem for the Lakers, you're wow, courtside. It was great.
2: that's pretty fun.
3: Alan, that's you ought to get cool. on that list.
2: I know. Speaking of Dream On, I remember I went with a younger friend to live karaoke, and I thought, okay, I'm going to blow these guys away. I'm going to sing Dream On. Oh, and I'm like, oh, that's right. The end goes up. <laughs> like 15, oct- 15 <laughs> octaves <laughs> and I blew it. It was so embarrassing. And then, so I started like twirling the mic like Roger to <sighs> as a diversion. Rhett, a lot of your songs are about failed relationships and it got me to thinking about albums that i love that cover the same terrain i think the quintessential example is fleetwood mac rumors because there were two relationships ending in the band while they're in the studio and they're writing about them in real time right but i also think of the great paul simon album hearts and bones from like 1986 which is all about him and carrie fisher's failed marriage and I was wondering if you have any albums that you love that are about breakups. Um,
1: God, I remember this as a trope in music from really early on, being aware of Blood on the Tracks, Bob Dylan, or Shoot Out the Lights, Richard and Linda Thompson. And That's a great album. Yeah, these records where you're working through something in public. I think for us, that record is probably fight songs. But, you know, for... for for me, there's, there, it tends to be a little more sloppy. Sad songs are more fun when they sound happy. Um, the song that I keep coming back to is that Dylan song, You're Gonna Make Me Lonesome When You Go. That whole album is so perfect, but that song, when he gets to the final verse and he says, I look for you in old Honolulu, San Francisco, Ashtabula. You're gonna have to leave me now, I know. But I'll see you in the sky above in the tall grass, in the ones I love. You're going to make me lonesome when you go. I'm like, oh, God. Breakups are so hard. And the idea that you have to have them to make great art or whatever is one that's problematic because then artists are either happy and making crummy art or they're miserable and finally doing something worthwhile. Like, that's no way to live. But there is some truth to it, right? When you're stretched so thin that you can't help but be honest, that's when a
2: lot of great art comes out, but it's not sustainable. Maybe artists are like oysters. To make a pearl, something's got to irritate them. Yeah. Back in 2002, you worked on your solo album, Instigator, with one of my favorite producers, John Bryan, who's worked with fiona apple and amy mann etc etc how was that i mean he's a pretty idiosyncratic guy
1: man he's so brilliant and it's funny he is idiosyncratic in a lot of ways but he's also like one of us like okay he's a genius and he can do things that nobody else can do john will like go and buy pianos and then he'll like have to rent these warehouse spaces to store all the pianos he's bought and he's got like a hundred pianos what are you going to do with them When we made The Instigator, he gave me a piano that I've still got in my house. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) But working with him was pretty incredible. It was still, you know, the old budgets and the old ways of doing things. So we spent four months locked out at NRG, and it was just so fun, man. Just the list of drummers was incredible. Jim Keltner played on the record. And then just spending the day listening to his stories But we would spend whole days where John would be trying to find a guitar tone for a solo, and that would be the whole day. (laughs) And now, when I'm making records, like in one day, you want to get three songs completed. And back then, we're like, finding a guitar tone is the whole day.
2: It's a different world. I met John once. I remember I was at Sunset Sound Studios to see Brian Wilson record because basically half of my band left me to become Brian Wilson's band. Wow! And so I went there once. Disney found a, an unfinished Gershwin song and had Brian finish it. And my friend is also one of the co-writers. So it's Wilson Gershwin, my friend's name. Wow! So I went to the Sunset Sound just to hang out and watch them record. And John Bryan was there. And I can't explain this. This is almost like your story with Dave Foley. But he's in there and he's got like this, um, I don't know, he looked breezy. Let me just yeah. say he looked breezy. And I was introduced by someone. I said, John, this is Alan, Alan John. And I said, you look like the male Mary Poppins. And and he was like, thank you.
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. You're reminding me of a John Bryan Spinal Tap moment where he was in the studio making a record for Kanye, early Kanye. And he called and he goes, hey, man, you want to come by the studio today? I think it was cello. Kanye's out and I said, oh, man, that sounds cool. Yeah, like it's super chill. It's fun. You'll be able to hear some of what we're working on. And it's really cool. So like an hour later, I pull up and he's in there with Tom Biller, his engineer, and it's just the two of them. And the lights are really low and the vibe is really weird and nobody's talking and it's not fun at all. And I'm like, well, you know, what's going on? You said this would be fun. And he's like, actually... Kanye's here right now. And I look around and it's the B room and it's small and there's nobody there. And I'm like, okay, where? And they go, well, he's in the vocal booth taking a nap with a lady. And I'm like, oh, they're like, yeah, he was out on the street and he saw a girl walk by that he thought was hot. So he said, hey, you want to come in and hear some tracks? And so we played him a song. And now like 10 minutes later, they're in the vocal booth together. I'm like, oh, my God. I'm doing this wrong.
3: (laughs) Oh, my goodness.
1: (laughs) I've never stopped laughing about that phrase. He's in the vocal booth taking a nap with a lady.
2: (laughs) 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 That is awesome. Rhett,
3: thanks so much for being here with us. We have just loved these stories. Yeah. So much fun. Where can our listeners find out more about you, find out more about the old 97s, your podcast, Wheels Off, all that stuff? So ATO Records is releasing my album, The Misfit, in September, and
1: that's, you know, Googleable. and they're really helping people buy the record that's a thing still, especially on vinyl. Boy, I had this artist, Ashley Longshore, create the painting for the cover of the album, and her stuff sells for like forty to 400000 uh, a painting. So you could buy it for a way lower price point, a copy of the vinyl, and uh, <laughs> then you own an Ashley Longshore painting, so that's pretty cool. And then Wheels Off comes out every week. The 97s are about to start recording a new album. My second kid's book just came out on Little Brown Young Readers, and that is called The Baby Changing Station, And that's kind of a fun book because it's got some rock and roll references in it. The conceit of the book is there's an older brother. When his younger brother arrives, his baby, he's jealous of him because he gets all the attention. And he gets sent to the baby changing station in the pizza place to go change the brother's diaper for the first time. And the baby changing station is magical and offers him the opportunity to trade his little brother in for gifts, basically. Spy goggles, or a pair of electric guitars is one of them. And so he starts imagining what he could do with them, but he thinks how much cooler it would be if he and his brother both played in a band together. And so there's a part of the book where it lists off the great bands that are composed of brothers, the Beatles, Oasis, the Kinks. He does say Sly and the Family Stone, which I'm not sure was an actual family band. So there's a little rock and roll even in my kids' book.
2: The Davies hated each other, though. Did you bring that I, in there?
1: I know. <laughs> yeah, you know, we sort of glossed that over in the kindergarten level reading <laughs> yeah, good, book. Good idea.
3: All right. Thank you, Rat. This has been great.
1: I could talk to you guys all night. This is awesome. Thank you. Yeah, ditto. <laughs>
3: ditto, ditto.
2: <laughs> Alex, we were talking about how the music business is not for the thin-skinned. I mean, if a guy like Rhett with all his success can still smart over a review from a quarter century ago, that just shows you how tough it can be. And let me tell you, the movie business, it's five times worse. Do tell. Okay, just picture this. It may take me a solid year to write a script. And then when I'm done, if I'm lucky, I'll find a few people who will read it. (laughs) If I get around a bad feedback, it's over. It goes to the bottom of my drawer, and I have to start on a new script. That's it. Mm. I mean, I have screenplays that maybe two people have read, and then when they read it, they could be harsh, like shit sandwich harsh. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to just quote an honest to God. This is from a screenplay I wrote called—I don't even remember what it's called. I kind of repressed it already, but this is what they wrote. (laughs) The dialogue feels overwhelming at times, along with a large amount of the jokes not landing, so it only hurts more being pelted with a consistent number of repetitive duds.
3: Oh, my goodness. That's brutal. That's brutal. But it makes me feel a little less bad about the feedback I give you on the scripts you write for this show.
2: (laughs) So you know I'm used to it. So you have to be tough, and you have to have faith in your abilities, because One success can be like a Neosporin to all the bad ones.
3: Well, right. There are people that are legendary, like John Legend, who talked about all the times he got turned down before he finally got a record deal. And he was actually working with Kanye West from very early in his career. So it's just like, even when you have wind in your sails, it still can be an onslaught of rejection before the right thing comes along. So yeah, you got to believe in yourself. You're absolutely right.
2: You know, There's an entire exhibit in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame of U2's rejections. Is that right? Yeah, it's really cool. But to be honest, I've had a really tough, I would say, three, four years of getting my stuff through. But last week, I finally had a win. I just found out one of my scripts was selected by the Midnight Oil Collective out of Yale to be developed and funded. So you know what? After all this crap I've gone through, I think I might be shooting a movie next year.
3: That is very cool. Are you sure you actually want to jinx it by mentioning it right now on the show?
2: Too late. (laughs) I have a theory on that. I believe in taking advantage of it, good news when you got it. And since most things fall apart, if I get good news, I'm spitting it out within seconds.
3: I I assume you'll be keeping us, our listeners, and everyone else posted on how this goes.
2: Trust me, you won't get me to shut up about it. Great.
3: Thank you to Rhett Miller for sharing his effing perspective on fame, fortune, and that other F word, feelings. When Alan and I lack an IQ, we more than make up for an EQ, just ask our wives. And we feel warm and fuzzy about this conversation with Rhett. We hope you feel the same, listeners. Special thanks to Kirsten Cluthy and Osiris Media for sharing this episode on the Wheels Off podcast channel so that Rhett's fans can enjoy it too. We love that spirit of collaboration. Thanks also to Joe Civic of the Missing Peace Group for helping to bring Rhett to the TMEP show. Too Much effing Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original. This episode was edited by Gretchen Kilby, music by J.K. Harrison. Please follow us on Podcast Addict, Pocket Cast, CastBox, Overcast Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Show, and join our mailing list on our website. That's TMEPshow.com.
2: Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Spinal Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions.
3: This is Alex Hoffman. We talked about how you got to believe in yourself and your creative powers. And even when the naysayers are telling you no, You say yes. It reminded me of this song called The Shark and the Goldfish from my band, The Vainglorious. On behalf of Alan Keller and me, thanks for listening. See you next time on Too Much Effing Perspective. Out here,
4: everybody is the competition. Out here, everybody's going for a bigger of the pie Out here Everybody's doing big wishing Uh Uh-huh And if I fail to succeed Well, at least I'll have tried Odie, Odie, Odie You hear it crackle Sometimes there's no air to be had at all Sometimes there's no folks Only goblins and jackals The folks are on the road They're out before the evening falls Odee, Goldfish Swimming in the sand
3: Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time On Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and, in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.